turn in Holy Scripture to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis 7. Doing a series in Genesis and Edgerton right now, so I'm bringing you a, a recent sermon from that series. In Genesis chapter 6, God announced that He was going to send a flood. And He called Noah to build an ark. Now in chapter 7, we read about that flood and God's saving of Noah. Genesis 7, this is the Word word of God. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female. And of beasts that are not clean, by two, the male and his female. Of fowls also of the air, by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. And Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean, and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth, there went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the seventh month, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, into the ark. They, and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male, and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were greatly increased upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died. And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth, 
And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth an hundred and fifty days. So far do we read God's holy word. The text is all of that chapter, so we'll refer to those verses of the chapter throughout the sermon. In Genesis chapter 6, God told Noah that he was going to destroy the earth with a flood and called him to build an ark. Now, God was going to destroy the earth and man because of man's wickedness. Genesis 6 verses 5 through 7 tell us that. So God was going to destroy man with the flood, but not every man. Genesis 6, verse 18, there God says, But with thee, and that's Noah, with thee will I establish my covenant. So God called his friend Noah to build the ark and promised that he would keep Noah and creatures alive in that ark. Genesis 6, 18 through 22. Today, we consider the flood, and how it, it pictures the great salvation that God gives to us. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, God says that He saved Noah and his family by the waters. And then the very next verse, 1 Peter 3, verse 21, teaches that that Saving of Noah and his family by the waters is a picture of God saving us through Jesus Christ. And so really, we have the gospel here in in Genesis chapter 7. And it's important then to view Genesis 7 as real history so that we don't miss the gospel truth that's in this passage. Many argue that Genesis chapter 7 is not real history. In fact, they call into question Genesis chapters 1 through 11, calling it just a story. Even that's taught in some Christian colleges, sadly. If you don't think, though, that Genesis chapter 7 is real history, then you do miss out on gospel truth here. There really was a man named Noah, and he really was God's friend, and he was saved by God's gracious hand. He didn't deserve it, but God gave him great salvation. And that salvation, according to the New Testament, pictures our wonderful salvation in Jesus Christ. So view Genesis 7 as real history. And let's see the wondrous salvation we are given tonight and give God praise for it. Let's consider the text under the theme, Saved by the Flood Waters. Saved by the Flood Waters. First, the boarding of the ark. Second, the destructive flood. And third, the wondrous salvation. First, the boarding of the ark. Second, the destructive flood. And third, the wondrous salvation. 
First, the boarding of the ark. When Noah finished building the ark, God called him and his family to enter that ark, to board the ark. But how did things get to that point? Well, Noah built the ark, and the world watched as he built it, but the world continued in their sins. They refused to repent. Noah worked on the ark, and he preached righteousness for a long time. God told him that he was going to send the flood, and God called him to build the ark 120 years before that flood came. We gather that from Genesis 6. According to Genesis 6, verse 3, God said within himself, we read, The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. And what God was saying there is that man only had 120 years left on the earth before he was going to be destroyed in this flood. We don't know if God told Noah that there would be exactly 120 years till the flood would come. It doesn't appear that he did. It doesn't appear that he did. But God did tell him about the coming of the flood itself. And he did call him to build an ark and gave him specific instructions about the building of it. And Noah worked on that ark. And while he worked on it, he preached righteousness. For 2 Peter 2, verse 5 says, God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. That Noah preached righteousness means that he proclaimed to the people around him that they were to live righteous lives. That is, lives in agreement with God's Word. They were to obey God. But that he preached righteousness also means that he preached that these people weren't obeying God. They were not living righteous lives. And he told them that because of that, God was going to send a flood. A flood in judgment. So Noah preached righteousness in word and in the act of building the ark itself. For in that very act of building the ark, he was saying, God, the righteous God, is sending a flood because of your sins, your horrible sins. Noah preached righteousness and he built the ark and the world saw it. They saw him build. They heard him preach. Yet they continued in their sins and were hardened in them. Genesis 7, verse 7 indicates that none of them repented and believed what Noah was saying because none of them joined him and his family when they entered the ark. Just Noah and his family entered. The people, people around him didn't believe what he was saying. Also, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 38 through 39, Jesus, in that passage, compares the people that lived before the flood with the people that will be living at the end of history. And he says that those people before the flood continued to eat, drink, marry, and give in marriage. But the indication is that they did none of it to the glory of God. They just continued to live that way all the way till the end, not repenting, not looking for forgiveness in the blood of the, the, the promised Lamb to come. They didn't care about their sins. Very likely, the wicked people before the flood 
whose thoughts were only evil continually, according to Genesis 6, verse 5. It's very likely they also mocked Noah as he built that ark, saying, where's, where's the water you talk about? There's no sign of it coming. We don't even see a cloud in the air coming. You're ridiculous, Noah. What are you thinking? Well, 120 years after God announced the coming of the flood to Noah, when the ark was ready, God told Noah and his family that it was time to board the ark. Verse 1 of chapter 7, we read, The Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. God said, come you and your house. Who was Noah's house? Well, Noah's house included his wife. Noah was 600 years old at the time of the flood, so he's certainly married by this time. And he had three sons, three sons who each were married as well. So there were eight total people in Noah's house. Now imagine what the previous years, those previous 120 years, had been like for Noah and his family. Imagine Noah on that dry land building this ark. Holding on to the promises of God the whole time that he was actually going to send this flood. We don't know if God talked to Noah at all between the time that he announced the flood coming and the time that God told him to board the ark. We don't know if God said anything to him. He may have. Noah, God was friends with Noah. So it's very likely that God did speak to him, but the Bible doesn't talk about that. Noah worked on his ark on dry land, his sons probably helping them, and you can imagine the people of the world again going past them, maybe on their daily walk to their job, and they mock him and they say, Noah, what are you doing? Day after day, they say, Noah, this is getting ridiculous. It's been this many years since you've started talking about it. Nothing's happening. And the tension must have grown as those years went went on. Noah just kept working and kept preaching about a coming flood. The sky remains clear. It may very well be that there were temptations that Noah had even to doubt. You can imagine how that would go for Noah. Temptation to doubt and start to think, well, what if the flood doesn't ever come? What will happen to me and my family? All these people around us, they, they hate us. Will, will they eventually kill us all? And then, and then what about the seed of the woman? Will the seed of the woman then be destroyed? And then there's no Christ. And we perish. Imagine then, in light of that, imagine how comforting and how encouraging it must have been for Noah to hear God say the words of Genesis 7 verse 1. Come thou and all thy house into the ark. And then verse 4, For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Noah had spent years building this ark in preparation for a flood. And at last, those unseen things for which he had hoped were finally going to be seen. The Lord was now going to bring that judgment upon those terribly wicked men. God was going to keep his promise. It was time. That's what God was saying to him. It's time, Noah. 
And God will tell his church at the end of history as well, it's time. Antichrist one day will be bringing horrors upon the church. Revelation speaks of that. He will unite the nations against the church. That one world government, think of that. All the nations, the powerful nations of the world uniting against the church. Revelation 13 verse 15 says, Those who refuse to bow to Antichrist will be killed. Imagine being on the run from the Antichrist and his men hiding. And then you hear of maybe your other loved ones in Jesus Christ being found and caught and killed. Imagine what those days will be like. So what comfort and anticipation the church will have when God says to the church at the end, it's time. Matthew chapter 24 indicates that right before Jesus Christ returns, certain signs will occur that he's about to return. Matthew 24 tells us right before Christ comes again, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give her light, and the stars will fall from the sky. It's Matthew 24, verse 29. With those signs at the very end, God will be saying, it's time! Jesus is about to return. No more suffering. He's about to take you home to the new heavens and new earth. What anticipation we will have of glory in that day when we see those, if we, if the Lord tarries, if we're still alive, what anticipation we will have or our children will have when we see those last signs of Christ's return. But today already we receive great comfort from the signs of of Christ's coming. We today are surrounded by great wickedness. That's pretty obvious. We see on the news even gay pride parades. Pride over that. Something Scripture calls sin. And people in parades shouting, my body, my choice. What wickedness right in front of our eyes. And then, Think about the wickedness that's available right on, in our fingertips on the phone for our children and for our grandchildren and for us too. So much disgusting sin. And at the same time, there's so much false teaching today too. False teaching that is becoming more and more prevalent. But in Matthew chapter 24, Christ has given us again signs that show He's coming. Matthew 24, verses 6-8, through 8, Jesus talks about wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in diverse places. He says those are all signs that show, I'm coming! And we see those signs. War in Ukraine, Russia. Pestilences like COVID-19. With, with those signs, God says, or Christ is saying, I'm coming! I'll be here soon. It's almost time. I'm at the door. So what anticipation we have too. What comfort and encouragement when we see those signs. We can say to ourselves, He's almost here. And He is coming. Just like He said He would.
Now, not only Noah and his family entered the ark, but animals also entered. Verses 7 through 9 tell us about that wonder. Chapter 7, verse 7, we read, And Noah went in, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark, because of the waters of the flood, of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean, and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth, that went in to and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah. Now according to verses 2 and 3 of chapter 7, God had commanded Noah to take animals into the ark. He was supposed to take seven of every clean beast, male and female, two of every unclean beast, male and female, and seven of every bird, type of bird, male and female. Now, having males and females, obviously, then those animals could repopulate the earth. They could reproduce and, again, live on the earth after the flood waters had subsided. Genesis 6, verses 19 through 20 indicates that not every variety of every animal was taken on the ark either, but it says every kind was to be brought onto the ark. ark. And kind there in Genesis 6, verses 19 and 20 refers to the basic natural species. So you understand then that not every variety of every cat was to be brought onto the ark but just two cats, an unclean animal, two cats from which we would get all our varieties of cats that we see today. Genesis 7, 7 through 9 indicate that those animals that God commanded Noah to take into the ark, they came to him seven days before the flood began. They came to him. Noah didn't have to go out and capture the the two cats and a giraffe or a couple giraffes and the bear and the elephant. He didn't have to see to it that there was the right number of each of those animals, the right number of of, uh, there was a male and a female and, and seven of every clean and two of every unclean beast. He didn't have to do any of that. Instead, we read in verse 7 that Noah went in the ark and then the animals came. Verse 9 adds, there went in two and two unto Noah. So Noah didn't go out and capture them. You can imagine trying to capture big animals like a, like a giraffe, somehow capture an elephant and all these animals in the right number and bring them in. But Noah didn't do that. They came to him. You can imagine Noah and his family in that ark looking out over the field and there comes the cats and there comes the bear and the giraffe and the elephant and they're not chasing each other. They're not trying to kill each other. But they come right to Noah, to the ark, and he takes them up in his arms. It's a smaller animal. He brings it into one of the, or leads it into one of the rooms prepared for those animals in the three stories that the ark had. Evidently, verses 7 through 9 show that this is a work, a wondrous work of God's providence. That, that God's powerful hand 
led the animals to do that. Kids, you know animals wouldn't just naturally, all these different animals just walk up to Noah at the ark. It doesn't normally happen, but God, by his providential, powerful, almighty hand, caused this to occur. He's so, so powerful, and he caused just the right number of each to come, and a male and a female. It's It's amazing. And the fact that the world around Noah refused to repent, even when they saw this wonder happening, that shows that salvation is entirely of the Lord. Entirely. They observed, the world observed these animals coming to the ark. They knew, they, they knew Noah did not go out and capture them. They saw the animals walking to the ark. And they knew that had to be a work of God. Yet they refused to repent according to Matthew 24, 38 through 39. They just continued eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the flood waters came. They didn't get on their knees and, and, and repent and pray in repentance. It's continued on living for pleasure. And that, that shows salvation is entirely of the Lord. Nothing but God's sovereign, gracious hand can turn someone's heart and bring them truly to sorrow over sin and look for salvation in the blood of the Messiah. Man needs God to turn his heart or else he will just continue in sin and unbelief. And that's the same thing for the wicked today. They will not repent, no matter what they see, unless the sovereign Lord turns their hearts. So they can see all the signs of Christ's return. We can explain Matthew 24 to them. And we can call them to, to turn from those sins and look to Christ. But if the Lord does not use that word to turn their heart Himself, if He doesn't turn their heart, they won't. They'll just continue on in sin and unbelief. And that's to be applied to us too. We too will not repent unless the Lord turns our hearts. We won't. So we today who are repentant, who truly are sorry for our sins and look to Christ for all our salvation, that's entirely of the Lord. Thank the Lord for that marvelous work in your heart today. And praise Him for it. Salvation is of the Lord. After Noah and the animals boarded the ark, God then sent the destructive flood. The destructive flood. Let's consider that flood itself. Verses 11 and 12, we read, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights." So rain certainly came down from clouds above in torrents. But that was not the only source of water. There was more than just rain falling from above upon the earth. Verse 11 says, The fountains of the great deep were broken up. That word deep in verse 11, it's used 36 times in the Old Testament, and almost every time it refers to the ocean. 
the depths of the ocean. The oceans refer to the place where the waters below had been separated from the land on the second and third days of the creation week. And that word fountains, in verse 11, that seems to indicate that there were waters below the earth that sprang up to the surface of the earth and out. Fountains of the great deep. And that the fountains of the great deep were broken up means that God cracked open the earth's crust so that there was water then shooting up from below the earth above the earth. Water shooting up. You can think of a geyser. Water shooting up like that. In addition, these earth, the earth's movements, the, the earth's being broken apart, the earth's movements were earthquakes. There were earthquakes in the depths. So you can, we can think of a tidal wave, a tsunami occurring here. God is causing the, the earth to move and to break apart below the oceans so that there's huge tidal waves that were sweeping over the land. Mass upheaval, verse 11 indicates. And that cracking open of the earth and upheaval at resulted in the formation of other bodies of land too with huge mountains and deep valleys and and the continents that we see today. Verse 11 adds this. It says at the end that the windows of heaven also were opened. There are different views about what that refers to, the windows of heaven. Some would say that refers to Heavy, heavy rains falling from above. And it's just a metaphorical way of, of saying heavy rain is falling. And to prove their, their idea, they look at verse 12. So verse 11 ends by saying the windows of heaven were opened. And then verse 12 begins by saying the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And thus they say that windows refer to heavy, heavy rains falling. Others believe that the windows of heaven being opened there, it refers to a a canopy of water being dropped from above the firmament upon the earth. So they look back at Genesis 1 verse 7, and we read there about God placing waters above the firmament. And they say at the time of the flood that water above the firmament like a canopy was just dropped upon the earth. We're not sure exactly what the windows of heaven being opened means there, but it does show, what it does indicate clearly is tons of water were falling upon the earth. And that water fell for a long time. Kids, you might think it rains a lot if it rains for two straight days. Think of being inside tomorrow and Tuesday. You sit inside and you just watch it rain. It doesn't stop for two straight days. We say that's a lot of rain. This was 40 days and 40 nights of rain. That's a lot of rain. And added added to that, the water shooting up from below and spreading over the earth from below. It's very possible that during all this upheaval, that's when God tilted the earth and made it to rest on its axis so that there are now seas, rest on a slant, so that there's now seasons, seasons that there weren't before the flood. The four seasons. And this, this huge flood, it was worldwide. 
worldwide. And that, that point has to be made tonight because some say it wasn't, it wasn't worldwide, but it was only a local flood. And that's the argument today that's made by theistic evolutionists. And theistic evolutionists are those who, they say that God created all things, but that it didn't happen as Genesis 1 through 11 says it did. Uh, they argue that it took God many more years to make everything and bring everything to develop than just six days. They argue the earth is millions of years old. Now, theistic evolutionists, they agree with secular geologists that argue that the fossil-bearing layers that we find today in places like the Grand Canyon took millions of years to form. Countless sea creatures lived on shallow sea floors, and over the course of many years, those creatures were buried, forming a fossil layer. And then, above that fossil layer, there were new creatures that began to, to, to grow on the sea floors. And they were slowly buried. So there was another layer of fossils above that first layer. And it went so on and so on. And it took many, 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 many years for all these fossil layers to form. Millions of years, they say. And their guiding principle is that all things continue as they have since the beginning. Fossil layers that are formed today, they're forming at the exact same rate that they did, they always have. So fossil layers have always formed at the same rate. It's always been the same. Now those who argue that the earth is millions of years old, they must argue against a worldwide flood. Because if there actually was a worldwide flood, then the many fossil-bearing layers that we see in the walls of the Grand Canyon and elsewhere, they could have formed rapidly. And because the plants and animals were, were killed and buried so rapidly in that flood. The forming of these layers then would not have taken millions of years. The earth then would not be a really old earth, but a young earth, and evolutionists would be wrong in saying the earth is millions or billions of years old. So many theistic evolutionists say that a flood occurred, like Genesis 7 talks about, a flood, we can say that happened, but it was a local flood, it wasn't worldwide. But Scripture teaches that the flood was a worldwide flood. Genesis 7 is very clear. Genesis 7 uses universal terms such as all, whole, and every to show the flood was worldwide. We'll look at a few passages briefly. Genesis 7, verses 11 through 12. We read in verse 11 that all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. All the fountains of the great deep on the earth were broken up. Genesis 7 verse 19 says, The waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Verse 21 says, And all flesh died that moved upon the earth. And every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And every man... 
all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land, died. When you start to look at it, you can think, how much more could the Holy Spirit say to show that the flood was not just a local event, but worldwide, is global. Additionally, the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, and 2 Peter 2 and 3, they speak of how God sent the flood in judgment upon the world, not just upon a part of, of the world or a localized area, but on the world. Astoundingly, everything all over the earth was covered by water. Everything. Genesis 7, verse 20, tells us 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. Water seeks its own level, always seeks its own level, so the mountains were not just covered in one area, but the mountains were covered all over the earth and covered by 15 cubits. That's 22 feet. We don't know how high the mountains were exactly at the time of the flood. There was so much upheaval of the earth at that time. But the floodwaters were likely thousands of feet high then if they covered the mountains. We would be amazed. Kids, tomorrow if you woke up, there's a huge rainstorm tonight. Somehow the streets of Hudsonville were covered by four feet of water. That'd be a huge mess, and we would be amazed to see that. Here at the flood, the highest mountains were covered by 22 feet. That is so much water. The, the, the flood truly was a wonder, a, a wonder of God. That's Genesis 7, what it indicates so clearly. Now, this worldwide flood... It brought great destruction upon sinful men. Great destruction upon sinful men. Maybe you remember the destruction that the tsunami brought upon Thailand in 2004. A massive wave that at one time was 57 feet high swept over the land, swept over Thailand and its coast. It hit, 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 hit buildings, and those buildings, when they hit by water, they, they folded over like houses of car, cars. You, you and I all together, we could go up to those buildings right now, and we could all try to push it over, and then we wouldn't move them. But that water hit them. Water so powerful hit those buildings, they just folded right over. And, and cars and, and trees were swept away instantly, and people, thousands of people died instantly. That's water. Water is so powerful. You can see even videos of that, but it's, it's so sobering to watch, to think of the, the destruction and to see it, the destruction that that water brought, that powerful water that day in 2004. But now you think of the, the tsunamis that formed when God cracked open the earth the time of the flood and that water sweeping over the land as well as the, the water shooting up from below and the torrents falling from above. And then you think of those men sitting in their homes, nice homes probably, using their inventions that Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal Cain made and, and they're there and all of a sudden that water comes. And that water is, is flowing into their homes quickly and they drown they, and they die and all those men and all the creatures that weren't in the ark, they died, they drowned to death. 
It's, it's sobering, again, sobering to think about that destruction. Genesis 7, verses 21 and 22 says, All flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land, died. That destruction was so violent that we read in 2 Peter 3, verse 6, that the world that then was perished. So when Noah and his family, when they stepped out of the ark, the world that they saw was different than the one that they had been in. God had brought so much upheaval through that flood. And the reason for all that, that, that universal destruction, the reason was the wickedness of man. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. Genesis 6, verse 5. So the unrepentant, they perished in that flood. And then they perished forever in the fires of hell. And still do. And land animals and the creation, they also perished because creation exists together with man. Creation is one organic whole. So because man sinned, as part of that creation, the creation was destroyed as well with man. Now that worldwide destruction, that is sobering to think about. That's a picture, according to Scripture, of the judgment that's coming at the end of history. 2 Peter 3, verses 6 and 7 say, Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished, but the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And verse 10 of Second Peter 3 adds, The heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Second Peter 3 says that will occur at Christ's return. And how awful that will be for the unrepentant. We can imagine how terrible it would be to have those flood waters coming into your home and you and your family sitting there and drowning in that water. And we can imagine a little bit what it might be like to have the earth burned up around us, being burned in those fires at the end. And even imagine a little bit, although we can't fully fathom it, how terrible it would be to perish in the fires of hell under God's wrath forever. God's word says that is what will happen to the unrepentant unbeliever. That will happen one day. So in this destructive flood that's described in Genesis chapter 7, what God is telling us tonight is this. I hate sin. And I judge sin. Repent. The men of Noah's day, they had heard Noah preach that for 120 years. They'd heard him say, God hates sin. God judges sin. And they didn't listen. 
They knew what they were supposed to do. They knew they were to repent, sorrowing over their sins, looking to that promised seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. But Jesus says in Matthew 24, they just continued eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. They would not look to the promised Messiah. They just kept living for pleasure. There was no struggle to turn from sin into God. The judgment of God literally surrounded them. It was above them. It was below them. Those waters flowing below. They continued living in sin, thinking nothing will happen. What about us? We sin too. We can even fall into the same sins that the people before the flood did, such as living for pleasure. Maybe so focused on our own pleasure, our own fun, that we can even go a whole day, maybe even a whole week, really with hardly a thought about God. And we all know about those sins that are sinful nature, especially likes. Maybe disobedience to parents. It's doing what we want as kids. Or drunkenness. Or lust. You can think of the sin that your sinful nature especially likes. Hear the warning of God today. Genesis 7, saying, I hate sin, I judge sin, I even sent the flood. That's how much I hate sin. And my son is coming again to bring great judgment at the end, and he will destroy the world with fire. Repent. Be sorry for your sins. Look to Jesus Christ for all of your salvation. Look to him now. And if you do, if you do repent and you do look to Jesus Christ in your heart today, remember it's only because God has chosen you and God, the sovereign Lord, has turned your heart to Him. Remember, salvation is of the Lord. And be thankful for His great work in your heart. Now, that flood brought universal destruction, but God also used that flood to bring wondrous salvation to Noah, his family, and the creation. Wondrous salvation. Verse 23b says, They were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. You might think, when you read that verse, how did they stay alive? How did they remain alive with those? All that water sweeping across the land with, in a tidal wave, and then those torrents of water falling from above, water springing from below. How did they stay alive, stay afloat in that ark in the midst of such upheaval? Well, verse 16 helps us with that. Verse 16 says that before the rain fell, the Lord shut them in. It's the end of verse 16. The Lord shut him in. Now, God did not shut the door like you did on your way out of your house tonight and your way here. You shut the door and you left. God didn't shut the door like that. God shut the door and stayed there. The name that's used in verse 16 is Lord in all capital letters. And that means the name there in the original language is Jehovah. And Jehovah is the name that God uses throughout the Old Testament to emphasize His covenant 
faithfulness to His people. He's the I Am. That name's used here for a reason. That faithful God, He shut the door, but He stayed there. Keeping that door sealed shut. Keeping that ark afloat and amidst such upheaval. Taking care of His covenant friends. He was with them. And interestingly, 1 Peter 3 verse 20 1 Peter 3, verse 20 tells us that Noah and his family were saved by water. God certainly used the ark to save Noah and his family in the midst of all those, those waters, in the midst of that destructive flood. God certainly used the ark to save them. But 1 Peter 3, verse 20 says, and this is a quote, eight souls were saved by water. How? What does that mean that they were saved by water? Well, the water lifted Noah and his family out of the wicked world and separated them from that wicked world. It separated them from the wicked who persecuted them, who tempted them to turn from the Lord and walk in sin, continue in it to destruction. And separated them from that wicked world that sought to destroy the seed of the woman and keep Christ from coming. That flood water, it also brought them to the new creation. The new creation, it brought them out of that world and to a new world safely to a new world that God had formed for them. So God saved Noah and his family by water, but also saved his creation. He miraculously kept alive the animals in the ark. There are critics today who will say that was impossible. There's no way you could keep alive that many animals all in that that close of quarters for a year and ten days. No way that could happen. But they fail to to reckon with the fact that the ark, according to Scripture, was a very large vessel. It was as big as a modern cruise ship. And they also fail to reckon with the fact that God only brought each kind of animal onto the ark and not every variety of every animal. And it may be that God led smaller, less mature animals to the ark to be kept there and not the the biggest ones of each kind. But the important thing to remember when the critics say that can't be that all these animals were kept alive, the important thing to remember is that's what the Word of God says. And the Word of God is infallible. It's the truth. God did save alive a church and a creation here. And that marvelous work of saving alive a church and a creation, it pictures our great salvation, our marvelous salvation. Certainly, a picture of our salvation is seen in the vessel of the ark. Think about once how God saved Noah and his family in the ark from his wrath that he brought upon the wicked. Today, God saves us believers from His wrath in Jesus Christ. We believers, we're not in the ark, but we're in Christ. 
We believers are connected with him, else we wouldn't believe. We're connected with Christ, so we are saved then from the wrath that we deserve for our horrible sins. Think of that, I, you, in Christ. The New Testament especially emphasizes that Noah being saved by the water is a picture of our being saved by Christ's blood. I'm going to read 1 Peter 3, verses 20 and 21. So you can see that that's exactly what the New Testament says. We read there, "...which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ." So notice there, 1 Peter 3 says that the water of the flood was a figure of baptism. Well, we know that baptism points, the water of baptism points to Christ's blood. So the flood water was a picture of Christ's blood. How? Well, the water of the flood, it lifted Noah and his family out of the wicked world and separated them from the world and its wicked ways. So does Christ's blood cleanse us, separating us from the world and its ways. You see, based on Christ's shed blood at the cross, Jesus Christ now works in us to believe and to serve Him and to want to serve Him even tonight and praise Him and worship Him. Cleansed in Christ's blood. And additionally, the water of the flood, the water of the flood brought Noah and his family into a new world. Well, so do we get into the new heavens and new earth only through Christ's blood. Praise God for the shedding of Christ's blood for us. The flood points us to Christ's washing and to our salvation at the end of history as well. Our salvation at the end of the world, according to Matthew 24, verse 37. At the end, as we've seen tonight, the the world will be violently persecuting the church. And God will bring fiery judgment at that last day upon the world and separate us from that world that's, that's persecuting the church. And seeking to tempt the church away from from God's ways and hurting her, God will come in judgment upon them and separate us from that world and bring us to the perfection of the new heavens and new earth. This present creation will be destroyed, but out of it won't be annihilated, it'll be be destroyed, but not annihilated, not of that, that mass. Christ will form the new heavens and new earth where we will go because of Christ's blood. And we will get to see. God's glory and its fullness in that new creation forever. So that we see his wisdom in, in all the creatures around us. We see his power in, in all the, the glorious plants and, and animals. See it even more, way more fully than we see it today. It'll be perfect. And that's where repentant believers are going. That's the future for repentant believers because of Jesus Christ. So repent and look to Jesus Christ alone for all your salvation tonight. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Father which art in heaven, Lord, we come before thee thankful for thy word. Apply it to our hearts now. Lord, work in us repentance, true sorrow over sin, and a, a looking to Jesus Christ for all of our salvation. May we not think even about how others need to repent or look for salvation, but may we think about ourselves and look to Christ. And Lord, may we look forward to that final salvation too when we're brought to that glorious new heavens and new earth one day. We long for that day. May it come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.